Hello and welcome to Two Guys One Cup Summer Edition. My name is Charlie Clawson and this series is my club. Something pretty special this week. You might remember we had Ian Meadows on the show a few weeks back and he was a big West Coast Eagles fan. Well, this week we thought we'd get his sister on the show, Nerily Meadows. She's a journalist and a broadcaster and a commentator, and she's also a Frio Dockers fan. So strap yourselves in, get ready to work out if it's pronounced Derby or Derby, and find out a little bit more about the Fremantle Dockers with Nerily Meadows. Narrowly, it's a little intimidating um, having you on this show because I'm not sure if you've heard any episodes of Two Guys, One Cup that I do with Will, but we are not known for our footy prowess or our insight or our knowledge or even being able to name most of the coaches of a team in any given year. So uh, forgive me if I, if I step on your toes without forgetting names of Frio players or coaches over the years. It's not, it's not our, our greatest strength on this show. <laughs> No, look, no issues there whatsoever. I actually, before recording uh, this one, listened to the episode that you recorded with my brother, actually, the right. West Coast supporter, so the enemy. Um, yeah. And I was actually quite surprised because he missed out one of his favourite stories to tell. Which is what? Which is he was actually quite a good footballer. He, he, he was, as he said, that he was, you know, the hard nut and the one that sort of laid all the bumps and the shepherds and all that sort of thing. But he actually was pretty good and he ended up playing for Subi Colts in the um in the waffle and he uh ended up out of that team because this young curly-headed bloke came in who was even slower than ian and he was sitting there going this is so unfair um you know this this bloke's like slower than me what is going on turns out um a few years later i'm at the brownlow and um (laughs) my brother sends me a message and goes so, yeah, you know, that, that curly-headed slow bloke that kicked me out of the Subi Colts team just won a brown loaf. Yes, I'm a better footballer than I said originally. So that's Ian's favourite story to tell, that he ended up getting booted from the Colts team for a bloke that won a brown loaf in Matt Prittis. So I'm, I'm surprised, actually, he didn't, uh, didn't go with that one. I'm always fascinated by families um, where siblings enter barracking for different teams. Tell me how that happened for you, especially because Frio would have been a new a new side when you started barracking with them, I imagine. Yeah, so I didn't jump on board straight away with Frio. I stuck with West Coast because that's what all my family went for. And I still remember sort of living through 92, 94 flags as a West Coast supporter and all the um, blue and gold balloons on everyone's fence and houses and, and stuff like that. But I ended up, I'm the opposite of a bandwagon jumper. So I jumped across because we were getting belted in every single Western Derby and I found myself wanting Fremantle to win. Mm. And that was basically when I went, oh, if I want them to win Western Derbies, I probably go for Frio. Um, So I'm a bit of a different sort of supporter in that way and I ended up going across uh, going for Frio, Tony Modra, loved him at the time as well. Um, and, yeah, so I basically went with that call and then never hated West Coast. Um, so, yeah, my brothers bought me membership to Frio when I moved up to Perth when I was a 17-year-old and they would come along with me to a few of those games and Ian kind of came a bit of a, a closet Frio fan. Oh, <laughs> um, that's fascinating. My, my my other brother is also a closet Frio fan, um, our oldest brother, Ross, because I've uh, got his daughter, Miller, involved with Frio now through the AFLW team because Frio had the girls' team before West Coast did. So I'm slowly recruiting Meadowses into the Frio bandwagon. Yeah, I was going to say that must be a, a fairly rare occurrence. I imagine when one of the Western Australian teams is in a grand final all of Western Australia gets behind the Western Australian team or does that not happen? Like when Frio played the Hawks... Yeah, generally the hatred is real between uh, Frio and West Coast. Um, but for me, I have always sort of wanted West 
um, West Australian teams to do well. And it was funny, my niece also, who I've sort of brought across to Frio, she says at West Coast, her second team. And we've got an auntie, um, Arnie Rosemary, who is a really strong West Coast supporter. And just at Boxing Day recently, um, she was one of the little boys, had a West Coast jumper. And Miller was saying she goes for Frio. And Arnie Rosemary is sitting there going, oh, no, we don't like the Dockers. We go for West Coast. And my my poor eight-year-old niece, Miller, was so confused and pulled me aside later and said, Arnie Narrowly, why does Arnie Rosemary hate the Dockers so much? <laughs> I sort of had to explain to her what rivalries are and, you know, that West Coast came along first and then Fremantle came along, but there's not enough room for two teams in this town and, you know, trying to explain it all to my niece. So I think we are a bit of a unique family. It's a fascinating thing, though, because explain to me what is the perception within Western Australia of the two teams? Like, obviously, you know, West Coast are the kind of powerhouse club. You know, they've got multiple premierships. And then Fremantle, from an outsider's point of view, seem to be kind of like the more working class club or the battlers. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we are the dockers. We are the working class, um, you know, Fremantle Dockers, whereas West Coast of the Chardonnay sipping north of the river, um, you know, type followers. So they're very different demographic um, and and you definitely feel that in the supporter base. Um, And I think the way that our paths have sort of, you know, gone on this journey is similar to that. West Coast have won all these flags, Frio are just still battling away. so, yeah, that, that is definitely real. And the little brother thing, you know, every time it was in, in, in Western derbies and stuff, it really was, you know, little brother Frio trying to stand up to the big bully, big brother kind of thing. So yeah. there is a definite real cultural shift between the two teams. And during the 2000s, it felt like, you know, the two teams really embraced those kind of personalities because, you know, those ratbag teams of the West Coast Eagles in the 2000s, you know, in the Ben Cousins, Daniel Kirk, Andy era, where they were supremely talented, but they had a real strut about themselves and they're misbehaving off the field. And then you had Mel, uh, then you had Frio who were just involved in, like that was the flaky Frio era, where the, especially with St Kilda, funnily enough, like so many bizarre games like Siren Gate, you know, whispers in the sky, even the way, you know, Mark Harvey was exited and they got Ross Lyon, all of it was just this kind of really sort of tumultuous, unstable uh, grounding for Frio. Well, it's funny because in 2005, 2006, when West Coast made the um, the granny both times, it was this really weird triangle where Fremantle kept kept beating West Coast, West Coast kept beating Sydney and Sydney kept beating Fremantle. And it just so happened, and Adelaide was sort of thrown in there at times as well, it just so happened that Freo kept ending up on the wrong end of the triangle in sort of prelim (laughs) and stuff like that and and finals that mattered because we actually had quite a good winning record over West Coast in those years that they were making the grannies. But, yeah, we sort of had, you know, the Carr brothers and it was that, once again, workmen, um, working class sort of tough it out against the real flashy West Coast Eagles of Jard and Cousins and Kerr. Um, So there was a while there where, you know, the Western Derby was really at its peak. It was was quite good to watch. So it's Derby or Derby? I I said Derby Derby just to make sure I'm, I'm ticking off both. It's funny, you know, because it is 100% Western Derby. But having been on the East Coast for 11 years now, um, sometimes I even catch myself saying Derby and I'm like, I'm going to get disowned. No one's going to talk to me ever again. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. Um, so, yeah, but we've, we've got a town in Western Australia called Derby and so I think it was always the Western Derby after that. But um, I kind of like my brother's description of it, that it was the t- toughest guy in the pub and no one was willing to disagree with him when, yep, yep, Sturby, you're all right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting with Frio too because you think about, you know, for a long time they were the newest expansion team and then Port Adelaide came along and now obviously West Coast and GWS. And so it almost feels like Frio, to my mind, are like the Lisa Simpson of the <laughs> AFL. They're the middle child, you know what I mean? They've been around for a while. They tend to sort of like get lost in the mix because they've got the older brother who's the overachiever and then everyone's excited about GWS who's a new expansion club. So, 
you know, do you think Frio, where do you think they, they sit in terms of, uh, uh, of culturally? Um, you know, do they see themselves, they embrace that underdog attitude or is that something that they're trying to change? Um, I think they are much more embracing of that sort of workmanship type um, vibe in recent years. I think um, Peter Bell has come back to the club and, um, and playing a role off field and he's trying really hard to rebuild that sort of us against them kind of feeling and um and really what matters about Frio and you know the purple and the um that vibe of it all um because yeah I mean on the east coast Frio are pretty irrelevant nobody Mm. talks about them you know if if Nat Fife hadn't won a couple of brown lows and Ross Lyon wasn't you know the coach we just would have gone completely off the radar on the east coast which is where Mm. so much media sort of comes from um but it's funny you mentioned gws because i was living in in sydney for the couple of years that they came about so i ended up having a bit of a soft spot for them because i was doing all the stories at work on these young kids coming through and they they were such nice people and they were such a welcoming club Mm. and having worked as a sports journal in perth where you know, I was over doing stories on Chris Judd's groin and Daniel Kerr's hammy and Western derbies and all these sort of things. And when you have to deal with the clubs day to day, they become a lot less, um, a, a lot less romantic and enjoyable, yeah. I guess. Um, and so I was a bit over it as a, as a fan. Um, and then when I moved to Sydney, it was kind of really fun watching Freo like as you basically look like you're diseased in Sydney if you're a Fremantle supporter. Like there's none mm. of us there. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, doing the, you know, the GWS side of things where they were so welcoming to a journo, um, I ended up having a bit of a soft spot for them as well and, and a lot of friends in that team. Um, so that's I think that's where I get a bit weird because I'm a footy fan, but I also know a lot of these guys. Um, and, and so it is that weird sort of thing that you end up, you liking teams just because you end up liking the players that, that play for them. I'm always amazed when I meet sports journalists who, um, who barrack for an AFL team that most of the time I never, I never know who that person supports. Like, is that something that you consciously have to, you know, uh, set your mind to before, especially if you're covering a game where Frio are playing where you're like, I can't let my color show or do people give you a bit of leeway to sort of be a bit biased? I think people trust that you are professional, but they also love that you're passionate because mm. the whole point, and especially working for, you know, a dedicated um, footy channel and those sorts of things that people want to see the passion and they yeah. want to see that, um, you know, the banter and all those sort of things, but they need to trust that when, when the lights are on and the game is going, that you can do your job properly um and report fairly and i think i've done a pretty good job of that over the years there's definitely a couple of radio you know boundary calls that i've done i've given a little (laughs) (laughs) the bottom because no one can see it because it's radio but and there's also moments where it's actually quite nice um you know like luke darcy with the doggies he gets Mm. quite emotional and um, and so there are moments where I think the audience knows your relationship to the team and they want to hear the emotion because that humanizes it and almost makes it that little bit stronger. So I think it's, it's a balance, but, um, yeah. And I think most people prefer passion over, um, over, yeah, unbiased sort of opinion, but that's different to covering the game as opposed to, you know, hard news and that side of things. So you need to be a bit more careful. Yeah. And so you said when you when you started making the switch over to Freya that Tony Modra, he was first captured your imagination. Were there any other players? Were there any homegrown talents or, you know, Freya developed players that you love? I loved Paul Medhurst. Um, oh, yes. Once again, I'm surprised my brother did not drop me in on this one he and my older brother Ross um, organised a framed picture for Christmas from Paul Medhurst when I was about 14 or 15 and I was just the most giddy, excited person ever. Um, So, yeah, I really, really liked Paul Medhurst. Um, I ended up interviewing him a couple of times and it was quite funny actually. What was it about him as a a player that that drew you to him? I just, he's, he's like, he, I mean, he clearly wasn't Tony Modra-esque, but he still had that skill. Um, you know, he was an entertainer, was a great goal kicker, took great marks. 
Um, but also just as a teenage girl, I just thought he was a bit cute. <laughs> so it's, it's all of that sort of stuff. Um, but the other players that I, you know, I love things about footy clubs like, you know, the, the supporter that went and watched every single Peter Bell home game and rang the bell every time he touched the ball. I, I you know, supporters like that, that, that's just the essence of footy. Um, in, in the later years, Hayden Ballantyne will always be one of my favourite Fremantle Dockers um, because he's got this wonderful story of a mature age recruit, you know, basically my height, um, you know, did it, did it the hard way, but he's the kind of player that everyone hates him, but everyone would love to have him on their team. And mm. also the player that when, you know, obviously AFL is a tough sport to cover on television because it's just so bloody big and expansive. And Hayden Ballantyne is one of those players that when you go and watch live and you just follow him instead of the ball, you just see how much gut-wrenching, gut-busting runs and efforts he puts in to get yeah. on the end of those sneaky little goals that look like gimmies but he's just been you know non-stop around the, the ground and that sort of um I yeah just effort and bravery you know playing with a broken jaw things like that standing up to Maddie Scarlett and being a general little pest um he's he will always hold a, a special spot in my purple heart that's what I was, I was just going to say it's an underrated uh role in a footy club of pest but like you know yeah. St Kilda had one of the greatest ever with Stephen Milne and I think like Hayden Ballantyne yeah. comes from I'm the same up. mold but like you just there is something about that player who seems to thrive on antagonizing the opposition fans as well like there is there is that kind of it because it, it's psychologically it does work like when Hayden Ballantyne does kind of like play to the crowd and kick two or three goals a game it drives you nuts as an opposition supporter yeah I mean Geelong supporters would just just hate him they hate him um and I reckon that's one of the most underrated modern rivalries in in Australian sport is Geelong Frio. If you don't follow Geelong or Frio, people don't really recognise how special it's been. But we've had so many finals against each other. We've had so many moments, the Carr brothers, Scarlett, Valentine, um, Stevie J. There are so many moments between these two teams that, um, yeah, if you, you package it all up, you go, wow, that actually is a pretty special rivalry. Yeah, right. I wouldn't. I don't really know anything about the Geelong-Fremantle rivalry. So where do you think it began? Well, um Car Brothers for sure and and Stevie J trying to get in his head, um, mm. that sort of thing. But also we came up against each other a couple of times in finals and Freo didn't play finals all that often. Um, Pav kicked six against them at the MCG um, and obviously whenever uh, Freo play at the G, it's also a rarity. Like 2013 when we make the grand final, I think we played at the G twice that year and then you're playing your third game in the grand grand final um so yeah we had a couple of of those sort of finals but then obviously it really um reached a new level when um 2013 in the um qualifying final and we were sent to simmons stadium which has never been done before and mm. um and it was just an absolute rot <laughs> they just changed the system basically to send yeah. us down to cadinia park a place where no one ever wins um and then to actually win that that game um, and that was actually quite a funny one for me because I was um, quite good friends with Troy Selwood's partner. And so I was sitting, um, Troy had, had moved into coaching um, in the VFL side for Geelong. And so I was sitting with um, Mr. and Mrs. Selwood in, in amongst all the uh, wives and girlfriends and family members and I was trying to decide whether it was appropriate to wear a free <laughs> scarf or not <laughs> and I was like oh come on like they've they've won a whole heap in recent years like they can't begrudge me I've never even been to a prelim you know <laughs> and, um, <laughs> never had a home prelim before and so I, I wore my scarf and then that moment that, you know, the famous moment of Sandy to Stephen Hill, you know, running goal and, and you sit there going, oh, we can't lose now. We, we can't actually lose this. Um, and Ryan Crowley did an amazing job that, that day as well. He's another one up against Geelong. But I think that was absolutely the moment where that rivalry went to a whole new level to go to Cadinia Park, beat Geelong. Um, after they'd won the three flags, yeah. It's funny, isn't it, barracking for a team that has very little premiership success? I mean, I was uh, chatting to Emma Race not long ago about the Hawks and, you know, 
As she's recounting the eight premierships she's like witnessed in her lifetime, fans like you and I, we have to go to things like home and away games or particular finals to hang our hat on. Like I remember, uh, you know, one of my favourite memories is is beating West Coast at Subiaco in Rob Harvey's 350th game because it's so rare that we ever win in Western Australia. But then I've put that up alongside, you know, her eight premierships. I'm like, it doesn't really stack up, does it? But I guess you got to hang your hat on something. But it's funny, you talk about milestones. I remember writing an article for Pab's 350th, the first ever um, West Australian-based player to, to reach such a milestone because it's so bloody tough with the, with the flying. Mm. Um, and yeah, and and for me, that 350th felt a bit like what other clubs would equate to a premiership. Um, <laughs> which crazy to even say that, but it was. I know, but we've got to get you something. Have, you've got to rev yourself up with something, right? It was funny <laughs> watching last year from from afar and seeing the Saints do well, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so St Kilda if they win the flag with no one allowed at the ground, <laughs> like. Yeah. I mean, like I said, that history between St Kilda and Fremantle would have been amazing because the St Kilda Frio Grand Final and none of us could have gone to the game. It would have been totally appropriate. Yeah. So speaking of Matthew Pavlich, like he was such a stalwart and an amazing player. Remarkable that he never was lured back to South Australia. Like that was always the talk every time his contract was up for a renegotiation. And I'm sure that Adelaide and Port Adelaide were, you know, dumping truckloads of money in front of him. What do you think it means for Frio to have him be like a one-club player. Yeah, it was huge at the time. Um, and I remember him talking about his dad basically saying, once you start something, you follow it through. And so he was, you know, had a lot of conviction about him um, to do that and and stuck it out and, you know, still lives in, in Perth now, even in retirement. So you have players like that and it definitely means a lot. And once again, the comparison is Nick Revolt as far mm. as, um, you know, such a stalwart, puts in so much effort and never actually wins a flag. And I've had conversations with Rue um, working alongside him about, you know, can you let your life be defined by not achieving the one thing that you set out to achieve and Mm. how much do you let that consume you in retirement? Um, And it's fascinating, you know, the mindset of these guys to have one, you know, we talk about it sort of almost jokingly as supporters, like obviously it would mean the world, but to have this whole, you know, 15, for guys like that, 15, 17 years to, put that much effort in mm. and still never achieve it and then live with that for the rest of your life. Um, yeah, it, it's a bit heavy for my liking. It's ridiculous. Like I often will, my mind will float back to like the 09 or the 2010 grand final, you know, the ball bouncing away from Stephen Mill and the toe poke. And it makes me feel sick. <laughs> like I feel <laughs> sick and I get, I have sleepless nights. And so I can only imagine what it must be for those players. But Having said that, when uh, did you see that documentary, The Final Draw, the one about St Kilda and Collingwood? And they interviewed a bunch of players who played in the draw. And I was really uh, surprised to see like Lenny Hayes and Nick Revolt talking about how they had actually put it, as far as they were concerned, they put in their best effort. You know, Ross Lyon feels like he couldn't have coached any better. And it was just a luck of the draw kind of thing. It just didn't work out. And even in Nick's autobiography he talks about like a premiership would be nice but it's not the panacea you know that'll change his life he's got other things outside of that and in a weird way (laughs) as a supporter that makes me feel better because I would hate for those guys who I loved watching play and I felt like you know I was at both those grand finals and I and I did feel like it was a flip of the coin that we didn't win a flag in one of those two years but I feel a little bit better knowing that like those guys can go on with their lives and leave lead rich fulfilling lives without that flag it sounds ridiculous because I'm just this guy who wears a scarf. But it's true. And I think the guys that I feel most sorry for are, are the Nick Nutt and Millies of the world. You know, the ones that did all the hard yards. Bob Murphy. Flag. Yeah, Bob yeah. Murphy. Um, actually, that's another story about my brother that he didn't tell you. He missed out the two best stories <laughs> about his footy life. Was that he was the captain in his under-16s team um, for the Collie, uh, the Mines Rovers Eagles. And he broke his collarbone in the finals two weeks before the granny. Um, and he, there was this big build-up to whether or not, you know, Ian was the captain, was going to be able to play in, in the grand final. And 
um, to the point that he even ran out on the. If you ever want to embarrass him, just bring this out. He even ran out through the, you know, banner, the banner, hit on and stuff because he wanted to, you know, join in. And the poor bugger. This is still the most devastating moment of his life, probably. He he couldn't play because um, you know it was two weeks after a broken collarbone, and unlike AFL footballers, they don't just put screws into sixteen-year-old <laughs> shoulders. Um, <laughs> But they ended up winning the flag and um, the coach at the time, Greg Little, um, gave his premiership medallion to Ian, ah. the injured captain. And so during the 2016, and I get goosebumps when I think about this, during the 2016 grand final, um, the presentation, all of our, our family WhatsApp group and stuff were like, he's going to do a Greg Little. He's going to do a Greg Little. <laughs> and, and he did. He did a Greg Little. And about that is I've turned out to be friends with Bob Murphy and I've since told Bob and Luke Beveridge, you did a Greg, Greg Little. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I love that it's a reference that only your family would get, but we need to spread that. Anyone who's listening to this, do a Greg Little. When you give up a premiership, you're doing a Greg Little, a premiership medallion. Luke Beveridge and Bob Murphy know it's doing a Greg Little, then, you know, the, the job has been done. Oh, the important thing is, does Greg Little know that Bevo did a Greg Little? I mean, it means a lot to you guys, but I wonder I, if Greg Little I knows. I messaged, I messaged his son, uh, Trent, who I was mates with, and, and said, Bevo did a Greg Little. <laughs> <laughs> so as a, do you think being a, a Fremantle supporter, like I often wonder, you know, uh, all sport is an arbitrary pursuit. You know, we invest what we want into it, but... Do you feel like barracking for this team that ha- you've never really been terrible, but you haven't had a haven't had a premiership either? Do you ever wonder what that says about you as a person? <laughs> like, if this was a relationship, if this was like a, a a relationship, how would you describe your boyfriend Fremantle? Well, so this is the thing, right? I see it as I wear it like a badge of honor. Like I say, I'm the opposite of a bandwagon jumper. And so many people go, "Don't you regret your decision?" I'm like, "No, I don't," because they with the underdog and I'll stick with them and people need support when they're down and that's just the way it is and I'm fully aware that I'm going to be the 85 year old grandmother at the prelim you know training session going oh this is going to be the year that we win our first flag (laughs) but it's going to mean so much more when that happens and I'm okay with it I mean, I feel like I hear every St Kilda supporter say the same thing. It's an earned premiership. It will feel so much better. The fruit will taste so much sweeter. But I'm also fearful of, to be that old man who dies before ever seeing the Saints win a flag. And it's been, I gave all this time, all this time, and you couldn't even give me one flag. You got me close four times. You couldn't get me one flag. And I'm not greedy. I'm not greedy. I just want one. Just one will do. I think that'll do me for my life. That That's the funniest thing, right, is... Fremantle supporters are so inoffensive that when we did make a grand final in 2013, we were the team that everyone jumped on board with (laughs) because they felt sorry for us. And all of my friends were messaging me going, I'm so happy for you. I'm so, you know, there's no like nastiness or anything. They're just, we're so pitiful as a club that people just really want us to do well yeah it's terrible the amount of people who say to me this oh st kilda is my second club or i really like st kilda because what i hear is you are inoffensive we have nothing to fear from you and i want to be feared i want my club to be feared hey look at richmond i mean you know four years ago will and i you know coined the phrase richmondy to describe you know richmond's ability to lose games in the most hilarious and heartbreaking ways but that feels like a million. Yeah, I know. It feels like a million years ago. Like it's it's interesting that question of culture, which always comes up when you talk about football clubs. Richmond seemed to have erased that completely, and I just wonder, like for Frio, you know, to erase it completely, is it one flag is going to do it, or does it need to be like a, a dynasty? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? And I, I and I've heard you talk about it before, but I don't actually know what it would feel like to win one and I like even 2013 I remember watching and I think because we we kicked so poorly earlier like I said it was only the third time I think that year that we'd been at the MCG the wind was howling so it was a completely foreign concept most of these guys had never played in front of that many people in Mm. their careers 
Um, I mean, we had 10 on Mazungu playing for crying out loud, like lovely bloke, but if he's in your grand final team, then you're probably not that great. Uh, uh, but that's the, but, that's the, that's the Ross Lyon thing though. Ross Lyon loves role players. Ross, give Ross Lyon five superstars and he can fill the team with like a bunch of good ordinary players and he'll get you a premiership side. Sorry, not a premiership side, a grand final side. Yeah. <laughs> need to clarify. Obligation to make. Yeah. Um, I was at that grand final though, and I was amazed by how much purple there was at the ground. I I think, um, I can't remember who got me a ticket, but it was this last minute kind of thing. And I just remember thinking, because I went to a function beforehand, one of those Channel 7 breakfasts or whatever. And I was like, oh, this must be a a dedicated Frio breakfast because there was so much purple. But then as I got closer to the ground, there was purple everywhere. Like it felt like you were a very well represented interstate team at the MCG that day. I think it's more that people were desperate, like that was history. They were desperate to be there. They were desperate to get across from Perth. But as I said before, I think everyone else who wasn't um, a Hawthorne supporter was going to be going for Frio. So it was getting across all of those sort of um, punters going along with the game. And purple is also just a really cool colour, let's be honest. (laughs) um, Yeah. yeah, it was, I mean, because of that game, because early we were sort of out of it and then we ended up coming back into it and um, and it got a little closer for the comfort. But I think because we played, we missed all those set shots early that yes. I almost relaxed a fair bit. Um, I think, my, oh, no, I haven't lost you. My computer just did something weird then. Um, I, I relaxed a little bit because of the set shots sort of, um, you know, to start with and everything that I just went, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to, I've enjoyed the build up. I've enjoyed the parade. You know, it was mm. nice to be there. Um, so I, I can't imagine how I would feel. Narrowly, narrowly. <laughs> that is loser talk. And I say this as a no, loser myself. That is total loser talk. You don't get to the grand final and say, oh, well, oh, well, it was nice just to get here. That- Hawthorne don't think that. Richmond don't think that. That's exactly what I'm saying. I don't know how, like, my brain cannot (laughs) compute actually winning a flag and and what that would mean. I I just, yeah, it's just bizarre to me, this this concept of actually winning a flag. Well, I think there is a thing of being more comfortable with the familiar, isn't there? Like, I do feel like Saints supporters, especially the ones I know, have a, have a suspicion of success like they don't trust it you know you know when we have a good year or a good run or even like a you know a good game there'll be a lot of saint supporters who don't want to believe it because i think they're scared of getting hurt you know getting their hopes up it's just that it's like a a beaten dog (laughs) they flinch at the at the first sign of kind of like opposition but there, there must be something there must be something that clubs do to insulate the players from that. Like if that's what the supporters are thinking, you know, and there is a history with that club of not having won a premiership, like it must be really hard for the coaching staff to insulate the players from that culture or that that attitude of, well, Frio never wins premierships or St Kilda never wins premierships. Yeah, absolutely. Like West Coast expect to make finals every year. You know, it's an expectation. Um and so it's a completely different mindset and it is hard to sort of change that. And, um, you know, I, I remember that as much as Rosalind sort of gets the credit for us getting to the granny in 2013, I think 2008 was really the shaping year under Mark Harvey because there were really tough calls that were made to, you know, retire off those older blokes, the Sean McManuses, the Troy Cooks, the, um, these, these sort of players. Um, Paul Hayes will be, I think, went on for a little bit longer, but they made really tough calls to, to go, okay, we need to get rid of the stalwarts who have done, you know, a service mm. and bring in a bunch of players um, through those drafts. And that was sort of the making of, of that um, you know, heading towards 2013. So I think Mark Harvey, you know, deserved a fair bit more credit than he got from that externally for making those tough calls at the time. But yeah, culture is such a funny thing in sport and mm. I don't know what ends up making it click, but I've, I've often, um, like I've had quite a few conversations with Freo of, um, and people that are involved in Freo now sort of saying, you're the worst club to deal with. You're the least open. Yeah. Really? Um, yeah, 
you know, it, it is that kind of chip on the shoulder type thing. I'm like, you need it. If, if Manchester United think it's worthwhile playing games in, in Asia and, and Australia, then, you know, Fremantle should think it's more worthwhile being on the East Coast. Like the reason we got sent to Cardinia Park is because there's not enough support on the East Coast because they've never put any effort into ever building that up. So um, I think that they could do a much better job of being more accessible, more open, and changing that culture from, sure, keep the hardworking sort of side of things, but get rid of the chip on the shoulder because it's not doing you any favours. So, but how did how did it work for West Coast then? Like, how does West Coast have such good representation? Is it just through success? Did the success lead to the kind of fan representation? Or do you think that they make more of an effort to reach communities? I think they're just a bigger club in general. Okay. Um, you know, they were the, the first sort of interstate club to come about. And so they've got more of a history. They're a bigger club. They're a more well-known brand um, in the AFL than the Fremantle Dockers. And, you know, premierships help that. People like Ben Cousins and big names mm. like that help that. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the prestige, the name, the, just the sheer size and enormity of a, of a brand like that definitely helps, but even they could do a better job. But when you're playing in grand finals fairly regularly, you're always going to get spoken about on the East coast anyway. Well, you have probably one of the most marketable uh, players in the game in Nat Fife right now. I mean, he's a, we like making fun of Nat Fife on two guys, one cup, but it's only because we're jealous of him, but you know, he's articulate, he's intelligent, he's talented clearly. Um, what do you think that, Frio, what do you think is the best thing Frio can do with Nat Fife in terms of does he become the face of the club or is it better to kind of bring in more players around him so people know other players' names besides Nat Fife? Like you have a blue chipper. How do you use him in the best possible way? Yeah, and I think the classic thing with Nat is having Nat he's getting better at realizing that not everyone can do Nat Fife things. So, you know, <laughs> like watching The Last Dance and Michael Jordan, you know, and that thing of the frustration I think comes from other people not being able to do what they can do um, mm. and, and understanding that. And um, I think he's getting better and he's even spoken about it himself of talking to young guys, trying to understand them a bit better rather than just expecting everyone to do it his way. Um, Cause he is a very driven particular kind of talent. So I think being a good leader is not just about being you know a good player it's also about learning the traits of those around you and and learning how you can also fit in around them and not just the other way around um I would also like him to get a bit better at set shots but you know that's another (laughs) (laughs) together. but he it's funny with that because he he's such a like an interesting person as well. And um, being there for both of his Brownlows has, has been super cool, but you also kind of wish that he let his hair down just a little bit more often. But I think that's just his, his personality is he, he is, you know, such an well, overachiever. Self, self-described introvert, extrovert, introverted extrovert. I think he described himself in an interview. Yeah. Once. yeah. And it's funny talking to him because he sort of had the, um, the realization uh, last Brownlow that he won of that I've gone for Freo longer than he's played. Like, you know, just knowing that, like the, the fine line, and you spoke about it before, but the fine line between who's more important, the players or the supporters, mm. because the players just get drafted there and yeah, they choose whether they stay or go and, and they put in the day-to-day effort but is somebody that's followed a team their entire lives more dedicated or less? Like it's such a mm. weird even debate to have over the person in the arena. Um, but you could argue that you just care about that club because you were sent there. I, cho- I chose. So the way that I always describe it is you get to choose your footy team once. So I got given West Coast. I chose Frio. So you're allowed to swap if, it, if it's an actual choice. And then once you've made that choice, you're stuck with it. You and I were raised very differently. It was not framed to me as a choice. When I was a kid, I was told I had to barrack for the Saints and that was it. So that's what I mean. So I was told I had to barrack for West Coast, so I did, and yeah. then I chose to, to um, go for Freo. So I, I jumped ship. But if you had gotten to, like, say, eight years old and you went, you guys made me go for, for St Kilda, but I've actually decided that the Swans are where my heart is for X, Y and Z. I think you get to choose once and that's it. 
Well, I mean, I'm, I feel like a bit of a fool at 43 years of age. You've just made me realise I could have chosen. I could have picked Hawthorne. I'd be so much happier. God, imagine if you would talk. I mean, probably wouldn't be doing this show, to be honest with you, if I was a Hawthorne supporter. I'd just be watching replays of just premiership success. Oh, man. That's, you know, if you win them every year, like, whatever. You know, well, Christmas comes I, every year, so it's not that special. <laughs> I think the way Emma described it is she now looks for different subplots to interest her, you know, so it's no longer about flags. It's like, how is Alistair Clarkson going to pull it out this year? I mean, it's like, oh, that's great. Imagine just having, just being able to, even Will talking about the, the Bulldogs, you know, the, the premise of Two Guys, One Cup initially was we both barrack for teams that have one flag in, you know, 100 plus years of being in the competition. And then in the first year of doing the show, the Bulldogs win the flag and torpedo our entire concept. So I've watched Will go from being, you know, a supporter just like me, who's like, oh, well, we never expect to win. And, you know, like you, oh, we're at a grand final. What happens now? You know, that kind of thing. So now he honestly says that he can relax a little bit. And the Bulldogs have had, you know, a fairly up and down period since 2016. They haven't really delivered on all that promise. But as far as Will's concerned, that's fine because he's got 2016 and we're trying to work out how long that high will last. Is that like a 10-year period before you start going, oh, well, I need another flag now to, to tide me over for the next 10 years? It's funny, isn't it? Because part of you goes, I don't want to go again. Like, we won the last one. Let's quit. Game over. Yeah, game like, over. <laughs> Cancel the comp. <laughs> I, I achieved it. I'm out. It's amazing yeah. how we allow ourselves, you know, to set different goalposts and I think you know people who are really ambitious and overachievers do that all the time don't they but it's also it's a bit of a poison chalice because mm. the moment you achieve something it it almost feels unfulfilling because you go oh now what like now what am I going to focus on so what? it's this weird thing that one flag isn't enough you have to go back to back and that's not enough they have to go three in a row and you know and create a dynasty and um so this it's never enough <laughs> Yeah, you brought up The Last Dance and there was a really telling moment at the end of that documentary, I think, where they're sort of wrapping everything up and it's the final interview they do with Jordan and he talks about, I reckon we could have gone for seventh. I reckon, yeah. you know, if, if we just kept that team together, if they hadn't, you know, already decided that they were... Yeah, and I was like, oh my God, this is your curse. This is your curse of being such a driven, successful athlete is that that's always going to be in the back of your mind is you could have got one more, but it'll never be enough because you get that seventh and then maybe you could have gone for an eighth, you know? Yeah, and that's the thing. Like I always say people's best trait is their worst trait. So for Michael Jordan, his best trait is his drive. His worst trait is clearly his drive because it makes him, you know, tough as a teammate on other people and it means that it's never enough. So what makes him great is also what makes him unfulfilled in thinking we could have won more. Um, so it, it's such a – I find it so fascinating. Is there one Frio player more than others that you think epitomises what Frio is? And let me give you some context, you know. Uh, prior to Richmond's kind of uh, dynasty run, I always thought Matthew Richardson kind of summed up Richmond beautifully because he was like so uh, – he could be completely captivating and inspiring, but then he'd do something completely bizarre and hilarious or, you know, kick it out of bounds on the full. Is there a player in Frio's history that you think that person is Frio, for better or worse? I'd probably say Sean McManus. Yes. Because <laughs> he's got the Western Australian hair as well. That yeah. kind of hair, that two-minute noodle hair, it's very yeah. specific to Western Australians. I wouldn't be surprised if he wears a shark's tooth necklace as well. <laughs> oh, he certainly has at some point in his life. <laughs> One of those little black beaded chokers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, the fact that our Fremantle Dockers um, mascot was basically Clive Waterhouse. Like, <laughs> 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 um, but, yeah, I would say Sean McManus just – just the try hard in the best possible way. Um, yeah, got the absolute best out of himself. Yeah, the spiritual captain, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I would say Shawnee Mack is probably the most um, Frio, yeah, for better or worse. <laughs> And is there, a, is, there, is there a highlight? Is that um, final against Geelong, is that your best memory to do with Frio or is there another game or a final that is up there? I would say that for sure. Um, I would say also the, the um, prelim against the Swannies, that opening quarter um, was pretty phenomenal. Like we, That is the most Ross, Ross Lyon-esque 
um, coached team where every single player bought in and it was ruthless and they, they out Sydney Sydney um, and, you know, we're up something like six goals to zip in the opening quarter and you're like, oh, we're, we're home from here kind of thing. That was mm. pretty cool. Um, but the the other, um, I would say, David Mundy um, and oh. the moments that he sort of had of kicking goals after the siren. and um, Incredible. And doing yeah, it he, like regularly, that's the amazing thing. I think every player can do that once. But the fact yeah. that he can do it like ice in his veins, do it multiple times, it's amazing. Yeah, and him doing it at the MCG a few years ago. And I think Ian was at that game with me as well. And um, it's there's just something cool about a moment when somebody, you know, kicks a goal after a siren to, to win a game, particularly on, you know, at the MCG against a big club like Richmond. Like it is, mm. it is pretty cool, those sort of moments. And I think you always remember that. But even I remember like 2003 um, elimination final uh, was the first ever final that Frio had, had um, made it to. And so even that is a pretty cool moment. And that was when I had the memberships that my brothers had got me. So I felt like I'd, you know, been there every step of the way. Um, poor old Roger Hayden had the worst game of his life and, you know, and we were no good up against Essendon, but it, even stuff like that, like you remember that. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a bunch, but I would definitely say that the standout one has to be like, that's the best win ever in Fremantle's history is at Kidinia Park. Um, qualifying final up against Geelong. And what's your take on on Ross Lyon? Because um, I always feel like, I feel like there, but for the bounce of the ball, he could have been a premiership coach. Maybe he would never have even gone to Frio if he'd won a flag at St Kilda, you know, if, if, the, if the jungle drums hadn't been beating so loudly. But do you feel like he was a, a coach who could only take established teams, you know, to that next step? Or do you feel like, you know, he had something more going on as a coach? I think the buy-in from Ross Lyons' players is undeniable. And um, these blokes love him, love him. Like Mm. Fife wins the Brownlow, I saw him get on the phone to Ross Lyon, even though he wasn't his coach anymore. Um, And, you know, those sort of moments. I remember having um, drinks with Justin Kaczynski and um, it was – there was there was um, a Frio uh, Richmond game on on the TV and and for, you know Richmond kicked the first five goals of the game or something like that at Subi and um, and Cosy sort of stands up in front of the TV and he goes, now what Ross you will be saying here is now boys and he just sort of goes <laughs> into this impression line. of Ross line and then always goes back to the not you Lenny you were great <laughs> um, but he. He does this. And then I said to him, I was like, you know, what, what would you do if, if Ross Lyon called you and said, I, I need you in Perth? And without skipping a, a beat, Cosy says, I'd start walking. Like they love him that much. And they still have a little WhatsApp group with all those St Kilda boys with Ross Lyon and stuff like that. And the thing about Ross is he is very funny. He is. Yes. So, and he says stuff that you just don't expect him to say. Since um, he's gone into the media, like that was one of the uh, my highlights of last year was Ross Lyon, media performer. Like one of the first podcasts he did with Damien Barrett. Did you see this where he talked about accidentally locking his cat in the washing machine? <laughs> It is one of the most unexpected and unintentionally hilarious five minutes where I don't even know how they get onto the topic, but Ross tells this story about putting a wash on and not realizing that the family cat was in there. And it is absolutely hilarious. And that was like one of the first ones he did for 2020. And I'm like, is this what we're going to get more of? And absolutely, that's what we got more of this year or last year, I should say. He's brilliant because, and he does that thing, you know, when people laugh at their own jokes, like he... When he starts laughing at his own material, it is a <laughs> little kid. It's so fun. Um, and I remember um, I was hosting a draft once and, and and this is his his dry sense of humour, right? And he doesn't mean a lot of what he says, but it's so funny. And hosting a draft a few years ago and Fremantle, you know, picked up a player and backstage I said to Rossi, I was like, oh, have we, have we got a good one here, Rossi? And he goes, well, if the past is a predictor of future behavior probably not <laughs> oh, this is a coach of my team like that's his humor he's so dry um 
and it's kind of, it's good fun and but it's weird with Ross because he's got you know that weird relationship with journos but I've never really had that with him because we followed each other around the country so when I was working in Perth as a journo he was the coach of um St Kilda or Sydney I think and then I went to um he was assistant with assistant, yeah. and Bruce um and when I went to Sydney he was in St Kilda and then when I went to Melbourne he went to Perth so we had this weird thing where we never actually worked at presses and stuff like that together. We've done a few bits and pieces since, but I've more seen him on a, in a social capacity, right. having drinks with friends after, you know, watching a Freo game whilst visiting Perth um, and, and things like that with, with my oldest brother, Ross, um, you know, and he does that weird, Ross Lyon does this weird thing when he meets my brother and he goes, Ross, 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 Ross. <laughs> like he's just that weird. Um, and you're just sitting there going, this guy's a senior coach, but he just flips so quickly into odd, dry sense of humour. And it's just really, really fun to be around because you don't know what's going to come out of his mouth. And it could be really mean or really funny or both. Do you feel like with with coaching uh, and obviously the move to Justin Longmuir now and even coaching in general, that the trend towards like younger coaches, do you feel like someone like Ross Lyon still has something to give as a coach or do you feel like the game has already moved past his generation? I mean, I would never be naive enough to speak on, um, you know, tactically and what it takes to be a coach um, and all of those sort of things. But I think we're seeing with, you know, Chris Fagan, Noble, these sort of guys that there actually is that trend back now to um, – to, to going back to older guys and, and wise heads, um, you know, Brett Ratton getting another chance, um, these sort of guys. So I think that if Ross wanted to go again, um, clubs would, would have him. Um, it's a matter of whether he's got the energy and, um, and drive to do so. I think it would be such a loss for the media, football media landscape yeah. if Ross Lyon went back into coaching. I'm really excited to see what he does this year. Um, what's your worst memory to do with the Dockers? Was there a game or a final or something that just crushed you? Um, I'm sure there is, but I, I think it's repressed memories. <laughs> <laughs> you don't revisit it. Well, there's not a lot of grand final losses for you to revisit, I guess. It's just the one. Exactly. Um, the 2013 granny, I would say just, you know, the number of opportunities we had in that opening quarter and, and just sprayed it left, right and centre. Um how did yeah. you feel did, walking away from that game? Because I know, you know, 2009 was the first grand final I'd been to since 97 and I was in a bit of shock, but that was only because I felt like we were winning that whole game and then it was just the toe poke that, you know, turned the game for Geelong. Because it felt like a bit of a foregone conclusion in that last quarter, had you had time to acclimatise to the fact that you weren't going to see your team win a grand final? So what was the feeling as you left the ground? Yeah, like I said earlier, I sort of, because it was felt like it was all over pretty early, uh, yeah. I did have that, oh, well, we made it. Yeah, time <laughs> um, to get a pie. And I got a bit nervous when we started um, coming back into it. And it was funny too, because I was getting a lot of messages from people going, we were getting robbed by the umpires. And I didn't even really feel that so much live at the game. And also you got to question yourself as a supporter with, with free kicks and stuff like that. Is that just my bias? So when I was getting other people saying to me, um, cause I was working on a show called before the game at the, um, at the time. And so, you know, Lemo and Husey and Mick Malloy and these guys are all, they're all um, like Lemo's obviously on board with Hawthorne, but all the other guys were on board with me. Um, and sort of telling me like how robbed Frio were getting and stuff like that. So I think that adds to the sort of, yeah, the feeling at the time, but it still got to that point where, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to win and, um, and you just, you walk away. And I know you <laughs> told me I was a loser before, but it was that. I was just proud of him for making it. And I've often wondered if we had a lot, if Lockie Neal was the player now and not the baby, whether just that would have been enough to, to tip us over. Um, Cause he was, you know, he was quite young at the, at the time, whereas now he's this unbelievable player, but you talk about, um, Frio and, and how they've, they're viewed around the country. Lockie Neal is, is a perfect example. He was a gun at Frio. He was an absolute gun. 
He moves to Brisbane, not Collingwood or Melbourne or Richmond. He moves to Brisbane and finally gets the accolades that he deserves from the media. I was just like, what is this? It's when is Brisbane more of a, you know, relevant relevant AFL club than, than Fremantle in an AFL state. So, yeah, we've never really gotten... <laughs> Hey, I've never actually thought of that. You're right. Like he went to a Queensland football team to kind of get all that recognition. It's sort of, it's bizarre. Like that's got a, that's really got a sting. Maybe that's your most crushing memory to do with Freo is locking Neil going to a, a Queensland club and becoming a superstar. Seriously, it's funny because um, hopefully I won't be in trouble sharing this, but there was a big early days of him at Brisbane. There was a big spread in the Herald Sun. Like Lockie Neal was, you know, a whole page, round low favourite. Um, and it was sort of, I don't know, half a dozen rounds in or something like that. And um, and I, I took a photo um, and sent it to him and sort of said, um, you know, nice to know you had to go to Brisbane for, for <laughs> Melbourne to notice you. And he wrote back and said, yeah, apparently I'm the favourite for the NAB Rising Star as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I quite like that. I was like, that's what it takes to get the East Coast to recognise someone from Frio. Uh, it's a question I'd like to ask at the end of um, all these chats, which is, if Fremantle, for whatever reason, uh, AFLW female team were to fold, just disappear off the face of the earth, do you think you would pick another team and carry on or do you think you would just be a bit more of a neutral observer of the AFL? I mean, I know professionally you have to be a neutral observer, but as a football fan, with your football fan hat on. Yeah, I'm, like I say, because I've got so many relationships with actual people playing the game, I would, I think, pretty easily um, end up liking someone else. Like, I... Like GWS, for example, I would pretty openly say that I'm GWS hearing is pretty much my. A lot of this. If I was yeah. if I was free, I'd be a little nervous about the way Narrowly's been speaking about GWS. It's just names come up quite a few times. So GWS call me their number one non-ticket holder. Because <laughs> <laughs> once again, it's that sort of underdog thing of you know no one really follows them, and I just love the way that they they treated the media and I think every player that has gone to GWS as a second club has become a better person for it. Um, yeah. Brett Delidio from Richmond, Heath Shaw from Collingwood, Shane Mumford. Um, they've, they're all better people now than before they went to GWS and they openly admit that themselves. Um, Stevie J is another one. So I just think they're a really good club that managed to build a, a culture very, very quickly that other clubs, um, you know, maybe didn't. And so I just felt invested in them as people, I think. So if Frio were, were, you know, for whatever reason, don't exist anymore. I think that would that would sort of be where I went down. But I mean, you talk about never winning flags and AFLW and stuff like that. We're we're undefeated last year, and the AFL calls the whole bloody comp off. So <laughs> that's what it's like being a Fremantle supporter. Oh my god, it never ends for you guys. It's just <laughs> one slap in the face after another. I yeah. totally get it about. Win a flag. Sorry, comp is over. No more <laughs> yeah. games. End yeah. of. I do get uh, what you're saying about GWS, though. I, um, Alex Williams, who's been on this show talking about the Giants, he's taken me to a, a couple of games, and I am amazed by how quickly they've established a, a football culture. Like, it felt like there was a balance of, um, you know, expat Victorians, South Australians, Western Australians who were there, but also the news supporters to the game. Like, they are so passionate and knowledgeable. I was really, really impressed. I mean... I've never had to really contemplate the the who I'd barrack for if St Kilda folded, but you, you're actually making a good argument because there's no baggage to be associated with the newest team in the AFL. Like, you could pick Gold Coast, but come on, who's going to pick Gold Coast? <laughs> GWS seems to be the most obvious choice. If you want to pick up a new team and start from scratch, then that makes 100% sense. Yeah, and I remember because I was in Western Australia when GWS um, like were born as far as a, 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 an idea um and I remember being like that's never going to work no one in western Sydney you know is going to follow footy rah, rah. and it was then when I moved to to Sydney in 2010 and the Daily Telegraph had um subtitles on um newspaper articles that said the invasion and I'm like oh it's gonna work because if the if the newspapers are that 
worried about it that they're labeling labeling it the invasion it, it's gonna um it's gonna work here and i just think they've done such an amazing job of being inclusive um and welcoming all cultures and really trying to get a foothold in you know western sydney and, and canberra as well that i just i think they've just done a really good job of it so i tried to buy ian's um son jamison a gws uh, jumper because I didn't want him to go for West Coast and I knew it, I couldn't get him across to Freo when he doesn't live in Western Australia and I thought he's born in Sydney you know GWS like I got all the big guns to to sign a little Giants jumper <laughs> for him and threw out the West Coast one so that you know that ended up working for my niece who like I say goes to Freo now and to the point that Cara Antonio the captain of the Freo Dockers organized for my niece Miller on her eighth birthday to be the mascot and run out onto Optus Stadium for the first ever AFLW Western Derby. Wow. Um, so my little niece running through the banner, you know, and I just thought, you know, she's never going back now. She's free for life. So <laughs> maybe I can, you know, get Jammy across the giant street, something like that. I'm just picking off one niece and nephew at a time away from West Coast, basically. Carol, this has been so great. Thank you so much for, for doing the show. 2021. Fingers crossed, it's a incident-free year. We have a normal season and normal length quarters and players can stay in their home states. But what are your predictions or your hopes for Frio in 2021? I, I like um, how we're tracking at the moment. I think they're embracing, you know, the, the, the culture, like the original culture of the club and really embracing the fans at the moment. I think we've got some really exciting young guys coming up, like, you know, Liam Henrys and Frederick and these sort of guys. Um, so I'm... I'm hopeful that we just keep building on that, um, having like Brayshaw re-sign and, and stuff like that. So there's enough youngsters there. Hopefully the guys like Nat Fife and, and Sun Sun have enough left in them to, to hold on for a bit longer. Um, and David Mundy is another one who selfishly, I really want him to keep going for as long as humanly possible because I'm running out of players that are older than me. Um, <laughs> That's he, scary. He Once they're all younger. Yeah, he's only a couple of months older than me. He and Sean Burgoyne are pretty much the only ones that are left because Aaron Sanderlands, um, Gary Ablett, they sort of gave it up last year. So I really need David Mundy to just keep on keeping on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Narrowly. We are